0: What a lot of us do as leaders is we fuse our identity to our results. And results are a lot easier than going through the really difficult searching I had to do to get rid of or to recover from performance addiction. But, you know, if I really believe that God loves me no matter what, that I'm accepted, that I'm loved that I'm cherished and that the work that I do doesn't earn me favor with God but flows out of the favor I already have with God. Those are very different motivations and suddenly I no longer need people to listen to my podcast because my identity is secure.
1: Well, hey there, if we haven't yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth Podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Today I get to share with you a conversation that I had with Carrie Newhoff. Kerry is a bestselling author, thought leader and communicator whose work on leadership, effective ministry and personal development are truly making an impact around the world. Now, in this conversation, Carrie and I dig into a wide variety of topics, but I wanted to start with one very specific topic for one very specific reason. The topic is leader burnout. And the reason why I wanted to start there is because over the past two years, I've coincided with a wide variety of leaders from industries around the country who are working to prevent or recover from burnout. And over and over and over again, Carrie's name and his book, At Your Best, keep coming up as a resource and a voice that are wildly and incredibly helpful. So I wanted to jump into the topic of leadership burnout and first find out why it's something that Carrie is so deeply and personally passionate about.
0: Well, I went through a period of burnout back in 2006, which seems like the Stone Age compared to what we've been through But it was so deep and so profound. At one point, I thought I'd never get out of it. I thought my life was over at 40. And I also thought it was so hard to get out of it. It's like, I never want to go back. And if anyone listening to this show has been through burnout, they know exactly what I'm talking about. And then of course, what happens all these years later is it felt like a bit of an isolated incident. You know, you heard about people burning out back in the early 2000s and We didn't really have social media. We didn't have the internet. We definitely didn't have a pandemic. I did it all by myself through poor leadership, self-leadership, great external leadership, poor self-leadership. And now it's just this thing that impacts, I would say, the majority of people, if you really look at the data. And particularly in the last couple of years, leaders are limping. They're just limping. So I'm passionate about it because... You know, as one beggar to another, it's like it took me a long time to figure out what was going on, how to correct it, and then how to stay out of burnout for the last decade and a half. And so if I can help someone else in that journey,
1: I'm, I'm down for that. I'd love to maybe reverse engineer it a little bit and and say, first, let's start from like the most extreme case. So to when it became like, uh, maybe you would call it like a rock bottom or whenever it became most uh, undesirable, what were the symptoms or what were you experiencing in that time? Can you put us in that place? For me, what symptoms weren't there is almost
0: an easier way to ask the question than what, what s- symptoms were there. So I'll give you a contrast, Alex. Normally, I'm a pretty optimistic, driven, high energy, high productivity kind of leader who, you know, I have a critical eye, but I have a pretty happy spirit. And if you met me in the summer of 2006, all of that was gone. My drive was gone. My joy was gone. I was Well, it was worse than going through the motions. I was going to say I was going through the motions. No, I wasn't going through the motions. I don't know that there were many motions left. My emotions were not working properly. I didn't feel the highs, didn't feel the lows, just kind of felt dead on the inside and the outside. Intellectually, I knew the mission I was on was really important, the mission of the organization I was leading, which at the time was a church, but couldn't feel it, couldn't access it. I was if you looked at you know my heart rate monitor it was it looked like it was flat, just dead, and that's a terrifying place to be and I had had seasons where I was really fatigued before that you know i went I went to law school, you get tired, you pull an all nighter you you go to bed the next night, you feel better, and by the weekend you're fine. There was no more cause and effect like when you're when you've really burned out there's no pulling yourself back. There's no like, okay, I'm going to take the weekend off and then I'm back Monday. Like none of that was working. I often think of it as falling off a cliff. You know, I've, I've jumped off a cliff once and the terrifying thing about doing that, it was into some water, just so people know. Uh, 75 <laughs> five feet down. Is once you, once you jump off the edge, like there's nothing to hang on to. There's no branches, there's no rope, there's nothing. And you're out of control. And that's what being burned out felt like to me. It was just bleak. In many ways, if you talk to burned out people, and this would be true of my diagnosis as well, situation as well, is that the symptoms for burnout are closely associated to the symptoms of depression. And I'm not somebody who really struggles with depression. I know a lot of people who do, but I don't. But I was probably clinically depressed in the summer
1: of 2006. When you look at that time period, is it something that you look at and say, oh, it occurred gradually, like I got there over an extended period of time, or was it pretty fast in terms of when you got to that stage of burnout?
0: Yes and no. So uh, it hit me like a ton of bricks in May of 2006. I was coming back from really uh, what I would say was a career high. I had started speaking at conferences, I got invited to speak at North Point Church in Atlanta, Georgia, one of the biggest churches in America at the time, one of the top, still one of the top communicators in the world, Andy Stanley. And Reggie Joyner invited me down there to to do a keynote and I gave it and apparently by all accounts, it went really well. So I was like, yes, they flew my wife, my kids down, the whole deal. And I jumped on the plane from Atlanta home to Toronto. And when I hit Toronto, I fell off a cliff. And that's when it hit. So that feels, on that side, to answer your question, very, very sudden. However, it had been building for years. And what happened was I was living at an unsustainable pace. I worked in law very briefly. Felt a call into ministry. Started in 1995 at three little churches north of Toronto. And those, and I mean little, like, you know, we, we had an average attendance the size of this interview sometimes. It was like you and me. Okay, that's it. I remember there was actually a Sunday where two other people came to church. That was it. So I mean, <laughs> when I say great. small church, I mean like just imagine the smallest thing you've ever seen. And then we became the fastest growing church in our denom- denomination in the country. We also became one of the, I think we were the second largest in the country in our denomination. So there was a lot of rapid growth. And as a young leader, I didn't know how to handle that. So my bad formula was more people in the church equals more hours of work. That was it. So I did that. And people said to me for a few years before I burned out, man, if you keep running at this pace, you're going to burn out. And I ignored it. I thought I was better than that. I thought I was stronger than that. I thought the rules didn't apply to me. And the rules never apply to you until they do. And I realized in May of 2006. Oh, they also apply to me. And uh, once once it hit, like I would get very tired. I was probably under chronic exhaustion, but I could function. I could do my job. Was I the nicest person to be around after hours? No, I was tired. I was grumpy. I was exhausted. I cheated my family in ways I shouldn't have. Not not you know in a way that would lead to divorce, but just wasn't as present as I should be at home and work kind of took priority for me. So, I mean, looking back, the clues were there and the people who were whispering into my ear, hey, you're going to burn out, you're going to burn out. They were right. But, you know, I had a couple of things. Number one, I thought burnout was for weak people and I wasn't a weak person. And I thought it couldn't happen to me. And then it did. And I've totally changed my attitude on about all of those attitudes in the last 17 years. But yeah, so it was
1: sudden, but also gradual. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I love that you use the word clues. If you were advising someone or talking to someone today and wanted to point out maybe some of the clues that they should look for to see if they're on that path, what would you point them to? Let's start with passion. So where's
0: your passion at? If you think about, you know, and I'm not asking you, I'm asking you rhetorically, Alex, but if you think about Alex a decade ago versus Alex now, Is your passion at a similar level? Now, I know that changes with age. You know, a lot of us are youthful idealists, particularly entrepreneurs and people who listen to podcasts like this. You know, it's like, yeah, 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 out of the gate. But like, do you have a deep, sustained passion for your mission? Because your passion is one of the first things to go. Another sign is your emotional health. And what I mean by that is, you know, it says in the scripture, I'm a Christian. It says, but I think this applies to human nature that you should rejoice with people who rejoice and mourn with people who mourn. And that means your emotion should normally have a range, right? Like if you tell me good news, I should be like, wow, that's awesome, Alex. And if you tell me bad news, like, man, Carrie, I just got this diagnosis. I should feel sad. I was a pastor at the time. My emotions didn't work that way anymore. They, I, I, I had a really good game face so you would tell me some great news. And if I wasn't bitter or jealous, I would, you know, and sometimes that happened, which is not a good thing. That's a sign of ill health. I, I would just kind of go, oh, that's great. But inside I'd feel nothing. Or if you told me like, you know, you lead a, a big congregation or a synagogue or a big company, somebody's getting sick every day. Like somebody just got cancer. Somebody's palliative. Uh, somebody was in a car accident. Like that just happens, right? scale. Like it just does. And eventually I became numb to that stuff. And so I had a good game face. I could pretend I was happy. I could pretend I was, I was sad, but inside I just kind of felt numb. I felt dead. So that's another sign. A third sign is, I mean, you're going to see it in your relationships. You're cheating at home. You're cheating your health. You're not working out anymore. But I would say what I call self-medication. So if you think about it, Uh, a lot of people to mask the pain. There's probably some pain driving that. For me, we can talk about it. Like I think there was a root cause to my burnout. I had a performance addiction at the time. I just needed to perform. Nothing was ever good enough, had to be better. So what's underneath that? Well, some kind of pain. And I was a pastor, so I couldn't really turn to alcohol or drugs to medicate that pain. So I did food. You know, I would overeat or not take good care of myself. And if you look at a lot of people who are struggling with burnout, there's probably some self-medicating tendencies. It's a little bit of alcohol every day, you know, that glass of wine, that shot a bourbon or whatever it is that you just kind of quote need after work to get through. It could be taking drugs, not exactly as prescribed or beyond their prescription or illegally. So, you know, there's drugs, there's sex. And ironically, you can turn virtues into vices. You can just start exercising at a crazy rate, right? It's like, I work out three hours a day. It's like, well, what are you running from? Or you become an ultra marathoner. It's like, well, are you running from something? Like, what is really going on? I'm not against, you know, I work out on a pretty regular basis right now, two, four, five, six days a week. But like, I'm not running from anything. That's just part of a healthy life. And, but you'll be self-medicating. Final thing is that you're starting to burn out when sleep and rest no longer refuel you. There should be a cause and effect. If you're tired, great. Go to bed, take a nap. You should feel better the next day. And what happens when you're burning out is you end up in this chronic exhaustion. This just, I'm just so tired. I'm depleted. And maybe you can still function. I, I, I divide burnout into two categories. There's what I call full-on burnout, which is what I had in 2006. And if you've got it, There's no question you've got it. It's like, you know, if someone just chopped your arm off, you're not like, well, is that arm still really there? Like if you're full on (laughs) burnout, it's gone, man. And you're like, yep, my arm is missing. Okay, you know you're burned out. But there's a lot of people in what I call low-grade burnout or mid-grade burnout. And that is where the joy of life is gone, but the functions of life continue. And so you're tired, but kind of chronically. You're numb emotionally, but chronically. Your passion is like, eh, I'm phoning it in. And you can do that for years. It's not, I don't think it's really what life is supposed to be about. I don't think that's a healthy place to lead from,
1: but that's where a lot of people are. Why do we avoid those signs? Because it feels like people have this incredible capacity to live at that stage of medium to low level for a very long time instead of actually looking at it and say, there's got to be something better. Do you have theories as to why we stay there? I love that question.
0: Nobody's ever asked me that question. I would say immediately go to, I would like to, like, we make peace with the status quo. Right. So before I burned out, when people were whispering in my ear, Carrie, you're going to burn out. First of all, there was a pride. There was a, no, I'm not. I'm better than that. So there's that. Secondly, there's a, well, if there really is an issue, number one, it's going to slow me down. It means I'm going to have to do some more counseling. I was doing counseling, but I have to do even more. Secondly, I might have to change my patterns. Uh, so I didn't really want to do that. And then there's another big reason. Which is, and I've, I've talked to a number of leaders, I'm so glad you went there, who have said this. And they've said, look, this is what made me successful. Running at this pace, running at this level, playing by these rules has made me successful. If I go get, quote, healthy, am I going to stop being successful? And I had that question. And I didn't want to stop. To find out the answer to that question, because, and now throw your faith into it, that makes it super screwy because our church was really growing well. And it's like, well, clearly God must be blessing this. And to a certain extent, He was. I mean, He's very merciful and very kind. He was blessing it, but like I was using methodology that wasn't illegal, it wasn't immoral, it was just unwise. And I don't think God intended to. Well, see us grow, churches, organizations, whatever our field of leadership is, at that at a price that costs us our personal health. So I was worried that if I quote, got healthy and took a break and changed my patterns, that all the success would stop. And, you know, that's a lie. Actually, it grew way beyond what I ever imagined after I burned out than before I burned out, but I did it with healthy rhythms. But I think a lot of people are like, look, this is all I know. We're going to stop being profitable. We're going to stop making money. We're going to stop growing. We're going to stop whatever, you know, fill in your blank. And I think people are afraid of that. And, you know, I would be more afraid of living a life and watching the relationships around me crumble than I would having a little less money in the bank or a little slower growth rate. I mean, I see things totally differently now. But I think that's an ongoing thing. Like if, if, if I got a sense from God that, hey, Carrie, some of your rhythms are still unhealthy or I had a good friend tell me that, you know, there's a sunk cost bias in, hey, this got me through over five and a half decades and I've been fairly successful. So who are you to tell me I need to change my patterns? Like this is, this is, this is just enough poison not to kill me. And it's like, well, what if, what if there was a future with no poison? Like, would you be open for that? But it requires giving something up. It's a really intriguing question. I don't know. Do you see, like,
1: what do you see in people who are burning out? Well, you kind of went to a spot that I I don't know that I expected you to go to there. But I think it's... um Man, Carrie, I think uh, it was one of the things that I wanted to ask you just about your career path in some ways. And that, I mean, your resume is kind of bizarre and that's putting it lightly, right? Like, <laughs> totally it's bizarre, like you went yeah. law school, little bit of attorney, right? Then pastor of a church. The church grew like crazy. And I mean, I, I would imagine for all intents and purposes, people were probably like, OK, Carrie is a pastor full time now. And then now you started this company that you're now a part of and, mm-hmm. and you're in the leadership space and personal productivity and writing books for the market place. It's just really interesting. I could see one of the blockers towards making any of those shifts being, oh man, what is feels so comfortable and right that I'm not going to step into anything new because new seems super unsafe and unproven, right? To go from mm-hmm. a legal profession with a law degree to pastor seems like a complete blindside left turn. And so I guess what I'd like to know, because I think it's related, is what has given you the ability to step into the unknown courageously like that whenever it would be way easier just to hit continue on a status quo, even if you knew it wasn't right?
0: It's way easier to change careers than it is to change yourself. And I I think that's a very perceptive question. You know, going from, and I've I've done even more than is on the resume. I mean, I was in radio. I had a career in radio lined up by the time I was in my early 20s. I walked in at 16 to a local radio station and asked them to hire me and they did. And then I got a job in Toronto and then I got like multiple job offers. But by that point, I was getting ready for law school and it was really good money. But I'm like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that with my life. And then I was in writing, like I did a syndicated column at age 19 for just some local newspapers. And then thought about being a history prof, that's my first degree, then went into law, then got called into ministry, did that. And now I'm serving, you know, some business leaders, but a lot of ministry leaders in what I do now. That has never been scary for me. And I have a friend, Todd Wilson. And Todd said something really interesting to me because it looks like zigs and zags and what what are you even doing? But he said, the thing that locks your entire life together is you're a communicator. Radio is communication. Writing is communication. What part of law did I enjoy? I loved going to court. I didn't like drafting contracts, but like put me up in front of a judge and try to change his mind all day long. What was my favorite part of leading a church? Casting vision and preaching, as well as aligning a team. Love that what am I doing now? I run a communication company. I'm a communicator. and My communication has taken different aspects. But the scary thing in all that, and when you have to be so careful, and I went through a major life metamorphosis back from 2006 to 2010, in the years after burnout, where I rethought all of my patterns, everything I'm doing so that I could be a different person, a better person. But the scary thing is a lot of people use career change or job change to substitute for personal change. And I think personal change is the most important thing. Because think about it in the relationship field. We all know somebody who's like, well, that first marriage didn't work out. So now I'm going to my second marriage and the second marriage breaks down. Well, I got a new girlfriend. It's like, hey, 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 hey. You brought all the baggage from marriage one unresolved into marriage two. And unresolved in a relationship three, and it'll keep going. I read a piece about somebody who's on their actual ninth marriage. I'm like, how's that working for you? Right? Yeah. Like, My guess is same person. Down, <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you dig down a little bit on that, you're going to discover that they didn't. They probably haven't done a lot of deep work. So what I would say is do the deep work, and then you might not be in this career forever. You may not be in this job forever. But you'll be in a much better place to be able to see, oh, here's an opportunity for me and I can walk into this healthy. Mm, Really
1: powerful. Are there any other like mental decisions or uh, maybe even mental compromises or mindsets that went into you getting to a stage of burnout? Do you think that you would maybe call people's attention to or say, be on the lookout for these things? Well, it sounds very basic, but
0: I think my default was more. More is better. More, 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 more. More people, more programs, more hours. I had a gas pedal, but I didn't have a break. And the whole idea that less is more was a very foreign concept to me before I burned out around 40. So that was definitely an assumption that I, well, I just don't believe it anymore. I think it's a lie. And ironically, by doing less, I've accomplished more since my burnout than I ever would have dreamt possible. Other things that I believed heading into my burnout.
1: Can I actually pause you on that one real quick? Please. As it relates to that idea of like, more is what is stimulating the growth and realizing, man, that's probably not a healthy posture to operate Mm -hmm. from can can you think of leaders maybe it's in the marketplace or maybe it's in ministry that you would say, man, they are highly effective. Like they're very competent. They're very good at what they do, but they're coming from a different posture towards growth in terms of, they're not just coming at it as like, we need more, 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 more more all the time, but they're coming at it in a more healthy way. Is there anyone that stands out as being really healthy in that regard to you? A couple of people. I mean, one, and he wasn't healthy in a lot of
0: areas, but Steve Jobs was really remarkably restrained you know part of what what apple apple's success under his leadership particularly round 2 you know when he came back from his exile was they were known for what they didn't do almost as much as what they did do so it's like oh you want a desktop computer we have one it's called the imac you want a phone we have one it's called the iphone now you compare that to nokia To Samsung, it's like we got 763 models and Jobs is like one. Now, it's changed under Tim Cook over the last 11 years. But another leader in the church space that I think is remarkable for his restraint is Craig Grishel. So he leads Life Church, which is the largest attended church in the history of America. So if you think about that for a minute, that's pretty amazing. They'll have over 80,000 people there on any given weekend, which is insane. More on holidays. And Craig is just so disciplined. He really believes in constraints. It's what he doesn't allow himself to do. It's the fact that he restricts his work hours. He has a very clear formula. They have, I think, 44, 45 locations as we film this. And, you know, it's like, here's how much it's going to cost. Here's how many square feet it's going to be. So you could get into the over-expansion mindset, but those constraints and that discipline – is really really good, and I—that's been something that I've become, like, much better at over the years. One one superpower that I think I've gotten a lot better at, and it's always a test. Every week I get tested in this. Some weeks I pass, some weeks I fail, some weeks, you know, I get a probationary certificate. But it's the power of saying no. And you know, most of the people listening to a show like this will have more opportunities than they have time available. And you've got to start thinking through, like, uh, you know, speaking requests, nine out of ten speaking requests for keynotes at conferences, I say no to. And that sounds awful, but it does a couple of things. Number one, it makes sure, like I just literally before I jumped on this podcast, had a conversation with my wife, uh, had an opportunity to do a what I thought was a Thursday event, which turned into a Saturday event. I almost never do weekend events. Why? Because I don't like working on weekends. I used to work on weekends. Now I don't like to work on it anymore. I like to keep it for friends and family. I'm probably going to do this one. It'll be the only weekend event in the U.S. this year because of the audience who's going to be in the room. But you see, underneath that answer is a couple of rules. If that had been anybody else, I probably would have said no. But because it's a lot of young leaders who are church planters and because I can fly in that morning and fly out that night, I'm probably going to do it. But You see, underneath all that is a whole bunch of criteria. You know, we say no to all of these things. We say no to all of these things. We say no to this as well. If we say yes, and when we say yes, here are the criteria. One, two, three, four. So if you start making pre-decisions about your time, pre-decisions about what conditions do you launch under? What conditions do you buy under? What conditions do you accept? then you know, a lot of your work is done for you. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about where do I add value? Where do I not add value? What are the things that energize me? What doesn't energize me? I basically work 35 to 40 hours a week. There are some exceptions to that, but I'm not. I used to work 60, but don't do that anymore. And we're able to reach millions of leaders a year through what we do. So ironically, as I've shrunk the footprint for my work week, And I've narrowed the criteria for what I do, the audience has grown exponentially.
1: Yeah. It's bizarre. It's inverse, and it's counterintuitive. I love those examples that you use, being uh, Steve Jobs and then Craig Rochelle, and then even talking about some of your own experience there. Because I think in some ways culturally, and maybe especially in Christian circles, it seems like we've become so fed up with hustle culture, right, where we say, oh, my gosh, like that clearly doesn't work. It's not what Jesus advised, so we're swinging the other yeah. way. And, and it's almost like the pendulum has swung so far that in some Christian circles it's like oh, – Oh my gosh, all we do is sing kumbaya all the time and it's like we don't work at all, right? And and I yeah. I love the example that you gave because it's like I look at Craig Rochelle as an example of someone that is really aggressive, quite frankly. And and oh, he is. playing yeah. on offense very much and taking risks and taking new ground. But it sounds like and I know you have a personal relationship with him. It sounds like he's doing it in a way that's really healthy. What do you think is the proper heart posture towards growth to make sure you're doing it in a way that is no less aggressive maybe, but you're engaging with it in a way that's really healthy?
0: I think a lot of that has to do with motivation. So I mentioned performance addiction in my 30s. There was a day, and I'm a public speaker, so whether it's keynotes at a conference or a sermon on the weekend, in my 30s it was almost all sermons. I remember there was a day where I came home Uh, after church and I asked the usual question at lunch and I just asked my wife, so like, you know, what'd you think of the message? And she said, it was good. I said like, good or like really good. (laughs) She's like, okay, it was really good, Carrie. And I said like, really good or like great. And she goes, okay, it was, it was great. And I said like, but like, how great was it? (laughs) And She she just looked at me. I was maybe 38 at the time. She looked at me and she goes, I don't know what that hole is in the middle of your soul, but there's no way I can possibly fill it. And she was right. So when I think about growth now, I've been really pondering this thought in my sort of downtime and quiet times. When there's a, this is not enough, whether it's your last quarter, your sales, your congregation size, your podcast downloads, when there's a, this is not enough, often underneath that, there is an, I am not enough. And I think it gets to our identity. And what a lot of us do as leaders is we fuse our identity to our results. And results are a lot easier than going through the really difficult searching I had to do to get rid of or to recover from performance addiction. But, you know, if I really believe that God loves me no matter what, that I'm accepted, that I'm loved, that I'm cherished, and that the work that I do doesn't earn me favor with God, but flows out of the favor I already have with God. Those are very different motivations. And suddenly, I no longer need people to listen to my podcast. I may hope people listen to my podcast. I may hope that, you know, I have some clients. I may hope I get some speaking invitations, but I don't need that because my identity is secure. And so, you know, a better metaphor for public speaking is, did I, did I leave it all out on the floor? You know, because they, they, sometimes as a speaker, you get up there and you ask yourself while you're delivering the talk, wonder how I'm doing. I think, I think a much better posture is I wonder how they're doing. And by them, I mean your audience. Like if you really lose yourself, if you really kind of forget about yourself, you're going to be more effective. John Mayer just recently completed a, a solo tour and I'm a big John Mayer fan and we've seen him play. And last time I missed the solo tour. We had a conflict when he came through our city. But when I saw him play a few years ago, I was amazed. I'm like, the guy doesn't need the money. He doesn't need the fans. I mean, he's, he's got go away money to like buy a couple yachts and go sail around the world for the rest of his life. And he's played these songs for 15, 20 years, right? So why does he really need to do it one more time? He got so lost in his guitar, like just lost in it. I'm like, this is, this is almost transcendent. And if you've been to a Coldplay or a U2 show, you kind of know what I'm talking about. It's almost transcendent. And it was Irenaeus who said centuries ago, the glory of God is man fully alive. And I think there's some truth to that. He was seen as a heretic for saying that, but I think there's some truth to that. Like when we get lost in our gifting, when I do what I was created to do, when I'm no longer thinking about myself or exactly what the growth rate is. And I pay attention to all that stuff. I mean, I had a meeting today with my leadership team. It's like, let's talk about our email strategy. You know, so you you don't lose that, but that's no longer your identity. And if God actually made me to be a communicator, how can I use that gift to really, really help people? And suddenly it becomes less about me I don't know whether it's ever quite possible on this side of eternity to make it not about you but it's less about me and then it becomes more about utilizing this gift it becomes more of a flow. And what Mayer said about this concert he's doing a solo tour he said, you know, I was nervous about not having a band and thinking about the set lists and he says what I really got lost in was the relationship between the audience and the stage. And he said, I think this is gonna change the way I play music for the rest of my life because I'm not thinking about myself. We just kind of got lost in this higher moment. And I think there's really something to that because if it's growth for the sake of growth, it's like great, you know, and I talked to a lot of CEOs who run publicly traded companies and they hate the tier. most of the ones I've talked to hate the tyranny of every 90 days, I gotta show better results, beat expectation, beat the street. Uh, I was in a a line waiting to get on an airplane in Toronto recently. And I I ran into the CFO of a multi-billion dollar company. I don't want to say which company. And they've been having some troubles. It's a retailer and uh, they've got properties in New York City and everything. And I don't know why he started telling me this stuff, but we're just chatting, waiting to board the plane. And he said, I know what to do to turn the company around. I'm like, why don't you do it? And he goes, because we have the tyranny of every 90 days. Every 90 days, we got to do this. And he said, the changes we need to make are long term. And he says, but we just can't do it because our stock will get beat up and we'll all lose our jobs and the board will fire us. And I'm like, oh man, you see, metrics are helpful, but they're not the be all and the end all. So, you know, another way to think about it is I, I I would rather lead a growing organization than a flat or declining organization. But I also want to think about growth in terms of quant- quality as well as quantity. What kind, like if you listen to my show or you listen to this interview, do you leave, even infinitesimally, a slightly better person? Did you grow? Like if I can do that, like that's a pretty cool thing to get to do with your life. And, and that I find if you often focus on the quality, the quantity takes care of itself. And restraint is part of that because if I'm burned out, if I'm tired, if I'm exhausted, I am no longer producing good resources. I'm not tapping into the best of what I can bring.
1: Hmm. I I love the example that you gave because in some ways, if you're signing up to work for a publicly traded company, it's like you're opting in for having to release a quarterly earnings report and having to meet those Mm -hmm. goals every single 90 days and you know you're signing up for that whenever you sign up to be the CFO of that organization. What's crazy is that there's so many mo- owners of mom and pop shops, right, 10 people, 15 people, 30 people that are feeling the same tyranny, but they own the thing completely. Like they it's it's not like that there's the stockholders that are coming to them saying we need to see your quarterly earnings report. It's like entirely self-imposed. And so it just stands out to me that sometimes the standard or theoretical finish lines that we're trying so hard to grab, sometimes it's not this external force that's being imposed on us. Sometimes it's the standards we're imposing on ourselves that are just kind of ridiculous.
0: hundred percent. That was my thirties. I had all these objectives and I mean, we were growing fast and it was great and God used it, but I look at it now, and there's a phrase I've really been, you know, at my stage of life, late 50s, a huge Seth Godin fan. And Seth talks about permission to do this for another day. You know, what did your last book give you? Because if you've had a number one New York Times bestseller, and I think it's from this article where he wrote about that, like it's one of his first books, just like, boom, and I have numerous New York Times bestselling author friends. I had lunch with one yesterday. And she's had, I think, five number one New York Times bestsellers. And I'm like, she's in her 40s. It's like, that's really hard to live up to. And she goes, it is. It's impossible. Like, everybody wants a New York Times bestselling book. I don't have one, but everybody wants one. But then when you get it, when you sit down to write your next book, you're like, Well, does this one have to be number one for two more weeks than the last one did? Like we're in this, we're we're on this roller coaster we can't get off of and this treadmill that we can't exit from. And I love the way Seth Godin phrases it because he says, no, what you want to do is you want to do your work today in such a way that it helps enough people and obviously makes enough money that you simply have permission to do it again tomorrow. So if you're that mom and pop shop, if you run that garage or that corner store or a small boutique online business or whatever it is. I think what you're looking for because the vast majority of us are not going to go public is you're looking for permission to do it again tomorrow. And if you have a little bit of money in the bank and a good audience that loves what you do, then you know you got permission to do it again tomorrow. And if that's 3% growth, great, that's 3. If it's 30, it's 30. If it's you know, a tougher year, okay, it's a tougher year, but you got permission to do it again tomorrow. I just love that framing because I think this hyper, and I'm, I'm a hyper-competitive guy, but the hyper-competitive world we live in, I mean, what is what is the fruit that it's really producing? I don't think the fruit's very good. The fruit's kind of rotten at times. Mm. And I don't think Jesus was particularly worried about, well, is this sermon going to be better than the sermon on the mount? I don't think he played that game. He played a very different game.
1: Very different game. I want to come back to the Jesus topic here in just a second as it relates to productivity, because I have a question that I've, I've been waiting for the right person to ask it to. And I think you're that person. But first, I want to ask you okay. one more question about the burnout topic. Whenever we look back at 06, was there a line in the sand moment? Like, did, did it say like, was it literally for you? No more. There has to be a better way. And then uh, if there was a line in the sand moment, what, what did the road to recovery look like? So the line in
0: the sand for me was my body and my mind. Uh, when I say, you know, we landed in Toronto and it's like I fell off a cliff. That's not an exaggeration. With hour, within hours of getting off the plane, it's like I was plugged into a wall and someone pulled the plug and my battery went down. Like, and so the line in the sand was, you know, at first I'm like, all right, I've been here before. I can fix this. Couldn't fix it. And I kind of hobbled through the first month. And then I had three weeks off in July. So this started in May. By July, I'm like, I've got three weeks off. I'm going to make myself better. And at the end of the three weeks, in which I did almost nothing, I wasn't better, I was worse. So the line in the sand was, oh, you're broken. Like you're broken and you don't know how to fix yourself. And that was terrifying. Someone told my board after that, I'm broken. I don't know how to fix myself. And then getting well, I was doing a lot of counseling at the time. We were digging into that performance addiction. I dug deeper, obviously a lot of prayer, which was weird because I didn't lose my faith, but I couldn't feel it anymore because all my emotions were broken. So I kept praying. I had an amazing community of people around me who were cheering for me, who were praying for me, who would drop in, check in. We have, we have great friends in this community. Very thankful for that. And then it was very gradual, Alex, like by September. So, you know, May, June, July, August, September. Five months later, I felt the first flicker of passion return. I was talking about the mission and the future of our church, which a month earlier would kind of be like, I'm sure there's a future. I can't see it. I can't feel it. Where I kind of felt my heart warm again. I remember toward the end of the summer, I was driving home. I had the radio on. And there was something funny on the radio. I don't know what it was, but I laughed out loud. And then I caught myself and I thought, I don't think I've laughed out loud in four months. So the laughter came back. And then it was like, I was plugged in, but the battery was charged to 20%, 30%, (laughs) you know, maybe. And it was very slow. I was maybe at 50% by Christmas. And I had enough muscle memory that I could do my job. I could preach, I could do whatever, but it's really the heart that fuels this. You know, it says in the Old Testament, above all else, guard your heart because it's the wellspring of life. And that spring was dry and the trickles started to come back in. Probably after a year, I was 70, 80% back, but I stayed at that 70 to 80% for another three to four years. And the recovery was more therapy. I took sleep really seriously. I spent almost all of August 2006, either working or sleeping, grieving, believe it or not. I have a friend of mine, a mentor, Terry Wardle, who says, Ministry, or I would substitute life. Life is a series of ungrieved losses. And if you have my wiring, you know, someone leaves your church, you're like, yeah, no big deal. Or this person died. It's like, oh, I'm sad, but hey, back to work, everybody. And there was just a lot of grief. So a lot of tears, a lot of sleep. And then I started. You know, when I was stable again at 80%, 70%, I started to research, how does this never happen again? Hmm. Because the pain was so bad. I'm like, I am determined that I will never let myself get back to this condition. What causes burnout? How does this happen? How do I prevent it? How do I live? And I started reading books and I started uh, listening to podcasts, which were emerging at the time. I hired coaches. I went to counselors. And over three to five years, really developed a whole new approach, which I was able to summarize in a single line, live in a way today that will help you thrive tomorrow. Why do I not do weekend events much anymore? Because I was a pastor for 30 years, you know, as a student and then otherwise. And I really wanted to have my weekends back with my family and my friends and my wife. And We go to church. And occasionally I preach at my home church, but like, man, this is fun. And so I know if I'm giving away weekend after weekend after weekend, I'm going to be a miserable man who does not enjoy my job anymore. Now, other people love giving away their weekends. That's great. That's just me. I prioritize sleep. I'm in bed almost asleep at 10 every night. And that's really important for me because I got myself exhausted. And I still get tired. I was tired today. We had a busy weekend, family and friends and that kind of stuff. But like, I know, like, okay, I went to bed on a good hour last night. I'm going to go to bed again tonight and I'll be fine tomorrow. It'll be great. So, you know, and then I started to really focus on, we can get into this if you want, energy management, priority management, and time management. And that became the the, the stuff I wrote about it And At Your Best, that I realized, oh, this isn't just like a personal prescription, this works for other people too. So I've had the privilege of helping tens of thousands of leaders figure out how to live in a way today that will help them thrive tomorrow. But I've been following that formula for the last 16 years-ish, well, 13 for sure. And haven't burned out, and most days are great ones, but it's a lot of restraint, it's a lot of less is more. And ironically, have just seen the impact of what I get to do you know, exponentially increase over what it was when I was burned out
1: Mm. before that. I love the way you answer that question because it, I think it highlights so much of the need for like, you got to have the right heart towards productivity and towards how you're using your time and your energy before you adopt any of the tactics or practices, because the right tactics and practices, it seems like applied to the wrong heart are always going to be not good. It's it's not going to create sustainable results. And so I guess a, a final question on this topic would be how, what is a practice that you have to sustain and maintain? the right heart towards work, towards productivity, and it falling into its proper place and never becoming something that becomes all-consuming again?
0: Well, it starts with identity for me. And the question becomes, who am I when all this goes away? Because it's so easy. You know, and having career changes probably works. Like, I'm not a lawyer uh, anymore. I'm not really a pastor anymore. I serve pastors, but I'm not really a pastor anymore. I do pastoral activities, but I'm not But I also realized I jumped from one thing to the other. So now I have a podcast with lots of downloads. I sell books. I speak at conferences. I'm quote in demand, you know, all that stuff. But I like to think about one day all the calls are going to stop. One day all the emails are going to stop. And then who am I then? Am I okay with that? I think that's a very good mental exercise. And I can't say I know the answer to that because I haven't been down that road. But I think it's a really good mental exercise. So I do that. And then have some really good people around you, continue to go to therapy, continue to decouple your identity from your work, but then say, well, what is work? Well, I really believe God has gifted us with great things. I think uh, work is part of God's design. I think it makes the world work, to pardon the pun. And so now I get to make a significant contribution. What does that contribution look like? it definitely has benefits for me, right? Whether you draw a paycheck or you own a company or whatever that is, definitely has some benefits that flow back. But primarily, I wanna be obsessed with the value that I'm providing to others. So I wanna make sure it's, it's more of a selfless, less of a selfish thing. And then I want to think about, okay, and what is the best expression of those gifts that I have? And then how can I keep it in a container that allows me to live in a way today that will help me thrive tomorrow. So I work hard, I hustle, but like the hustle's got limits. It means I'm closing the laptop by six at the latest most days. It means that Saturday and Sunday are days off. In fact, we went to the four day work week uh, last year. So Friday, depending on the season, can be mostly a day off for a lot of us these days as well. And we get to serve millions of leaders a year that way. And so I've rethought my time rethought my energy. The other thing, and and, you know, if you're looking for something super practical, this is the thing that seems to resonate with the most people. But as I was reconstructing my life, uh, I paid no attention to time of day prior to my burnout. Just get up in the morning early, run like the Energizer bunny all day and hope you can do it again tomorrow. Go to bed late because you had a lot to do. So I started prioritizing sleep, but then I really started to think about, okay, time management I was pretty good at, but I still burned out. Energy management was totally different. And energy management, I started to really study this subject. And here's what I've learned. Most of us innately have 3 to 5 really productive hours in a day. That's it. If if you look at it, our energy waxes and wanes over the course of the day, and intuitively, we have a time of day where we're best. So my guess is a lot of people listening to a show like this are going to be morning people. I was a morning person. I made myself a morning person. Other people are night owls. According to a lot of the research, a lot of people have a chronotype that peaks them in the middle of the day, like between 10 and 2. Conversely, so I call that my green zone. Think about that as your green zone. When are you at your best? So I'm at my best between 7 a.m. and 11 a.m. I get a little boost after lunch. Conversely, you have a couple of hours of every day, most of us mere humans, where we're exhausted. I mean, we got a good night's sleep before, but I got three brain cells left. I either need a nap or to go for a walk. I don't know what it is or more coffee or something. For a lot of people, that happens after lunch or it happens for me between 4 and 6 p.m. where I'm just kind of dragging. So I call that my red zone. So if you green zone, your red zone, and then everything else in the workday is yellow where you're not really at your best, but you can get a lot done. And the mistake a lot of people do is they burn through their green zone unstrategically. So I started to ask myself questions in the recovery. It's like, then this is part of living in a way today that will help you thrive tomorrow. It was like, what is a, I have like a job description of 28 things I'm responsible for. What are the most important things that I do? And I realized for me as a preacher, it's when the vision is clear, when I'm teaching well, and when the team is aligned, everything goes great in the church. Now, those are the things that I'm also most gifted at. And the challenge is when you're gifted at something, you're going to cheat your gift and you're going to do it after. You're like, I'll do the breakfast meeting and I'll write my sermon tomorrow. And then tomorrow doesn't happen. And then, you know, it's Thursday night and you're like, sorry, family, not watching TV, not going to the hockey game tonight. I got to open my laptop. I got to write the message. Ah, and, you know, I'm sorry. Or you're doing a Saturday night special, which a lot of preachers do. And I realized I was burning jet fuel when I gave my my green zone away every day to things that really didn't matter. So what I've done now for well over a decade is every morning is blocked off and I write. It's what I do. I write. I do deep work. Today, I wrote a keynote talk. I finished up another video that I'm shooting. And I wrote some podcast questions for an interview I'm doing later this week. That was the best use of my green zone. Now, there are a lot of people I could have had breakfast with, but that breakfast meeting at 7 a.m., you know how that goes. You meet at the restaurant at 7. You're supposed to be done at 8, but you finish up at 8.30. Then you go to a drive through get some coffee. You walk into the office. People are like, hey, Alex, how was your weekend? You end up chit-chatting. Someone knocks at your door. You check your email. There's 72 unopened emails. And then you look up and it's lunch. What did you get done? Nothing. So now I guard my green zone. So whenever that is, guard your green zone. And guess what happens? You get your most important stuff done. You get that strategic planning done. You get the uh, Q1 report done. You get whatever done, done. I've got my keynote. Like there's a little bit of chaos around an event that I'm walking into. My team's like, we don't have details on this, that, and the other thing. I'm like, look, I'm going to have my three keynotes done by tomorrow. Well, in advance, even though we don't have details, I said, if I have those things done, I can handle everything else. If I had my sermon done, like I'm preaching this weekend at Connexus, first time this year, I was done my message three weeks ago. So I don't worry about it. I'll dust it off, I'll have a look at it, it's finished. And what happened before is when you let everybody else's priority crowd your calendar, then you got to get that report done tonight or Saturday or your you're burning brain cells and worry saying, I got to preach Sunday, I got three keynotes next week, got thousands, oh, and then I have another conference and I haven't got all that stuff done. Dude, it's done because I set myself up to win. And when that's done, like I just got a text while we were having this conversation, very few people are allowed to text me, you know, but few people get into my favorites. And I'll have a quick time for a phone call after this. That's fine, I, I got my big stuff done today see the difference? Does that
1: make sense? Oh, yeah. And in so many ways, it's you happening to your schedule instead of your schedule happening to you. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of, he's a mutual friend of ours, is Brian Miles. Whenever I first started this business, a piece of advice or kind of just a word of warning that he gave me that has stuck with me ever since, I'm so grateful for it, is he says, Alex, the challenge that most CEOs face is that they spend 80 to 90% of their time doing things that CEOs don't actually do. And uh, Mm. that was so powerful for me to hear because it opened my eyes to the fact that, man, it's very possible for me to spend almost all of my schedule on things that are not actually my core responsibility as the owner of this business. And so I'd love to talk to you as a practitioner, like when you think about your business that you own, like what are the responsibilities that you feel uniquely responsible for as the CEO of the organization that you're leading, Carrie?
0: Well, it's a very interesting. And Brian might give a slightly different answer. I know Brian and Shannon really well, as you do, and love those two. But, you know, when they were scaling Belay, it's a very, it would be interesting. Bring Brian in, give him a quick call and get him in on this conversation. Because I'd love to ask Brian and Shannon this question. So they created a virtual staffing company, but they they weren't assistants. They hired assistants for people. And that's what Belay does. They weren't bookkeepers. They hired virtual bookkeepers for people. And so they would naturally gravitate to that part of the company. Like away from the task that they assigned other people. A lot of us are craftspeople. So, you know, as as a preacher, I would produce the central piece that the church does pretty much every week, which is the sermon. Right now, I run a content creation company. So I immediately would say, Well, I need to write well, I need to keep the team aligned, I need the vision clear. And that's what I focus on as a CEO. For you. You know, I don't know, like you do probably consulting and speaking and podcasting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well So those are those are non-CEO things they're craftspeople things. That's right. So I guess what I would ask you there then, because we have a lot of people that I would say are, uh, we have a handful of people that we work with that are very much in the Brian and Shannon seat and that they are building a scalable asset, right? That they are literally not ingraining their personality in it at all. Not because necessarily they want to sell it one day, but so that, Uh, Should they want to or need to sell it, they would be able to like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas your company is very I mean, your personality is ingrained to it in many ways. And we've got lots of people that we work with that their leadership, their personality, their individual wiring and skill set is deeply ingrained into the organization that they operate in. I guess one of the questions on that side of thing that I'd have for you is, you're wearing multiple hats then. You're wearing the hat of CEO of your organization and presumably leading your team in that way as the CEO. But then you're also wearing the hat of content creator, of interviewer and things like that. Is, is there anything that you've learned through that process of wearing multiple hats that would be helpful to share with leaders that might be in a similar position, Carrie?
0: I think for a lot of us, particularly if you're on the smaller side of small business, the, the chief obstacle to scale is your tendency to micromanage and not trust your team. So if you have a director of operations or a COO or a director of marketing, stay out of the sandbox, let them do their job, provide them with parameters, with KPIs, and then get out of the way. You know, I, I know that's a real challenge for people. It is, particularly if you, and I'm sure a lot of the people listening to your show are starters, they're founders, right? Mm -hmm. That's correct, yeah. So you remember, like if you're starting a church, dude, like of course you're moving chairs in and out of the auditorium. If you're not, you know, you got 42 people, you're like, well, I'm above that, you know, I'm the CEO. It's like, forget it. Like if you're not hauling chairs with everybody else, if you're not there for setup and teardown, in the early days, that's a mistake. But a lot of leaders have a hard time letting go. I interviewed the founder of Grubhub, Micah Evans, you know, that app. And he was a coder. And that's how he started it. He couldn't get a pizza. So he built this online directory using his coding skills. But he said one of the inflection points for Grubhub, which I'll get the math a little bit wrong, but it was a $2 billion plus IPO 10 years ago. Think about that. Unreal. So he grew up to a two, with his partners, a $2 billion company. He said, but one of the inflection points for him was when he had to stop coding. So he's a coder who's the founder of a software company, right? Really a web service company, an app, but he's got to stop coding. And there will become a time, we started this thing in my company called the Art of Leadership Academy because of exactly what you said, you know. I am the writer. I am the interviewer on my podcast. I'm the keynote speaker. Do we really have a company or do we have a hobby? It's a great question. So we started this thing called the Art of Leadership Academy. I'm involved in it, but we brought in other collaborators, other voices. It's a recurring membership site for pastors and for business leaders who are highly invested in their churches. And you know what? We're diversifying that away from me so that we have an asset that stands independent of me if anything should happen to me. So you really have to be thinking about that. But I think it's easier if you're doing a SaaS or you're creating a company like Brian and Shannon where you don't possess the skill set. But if you're the mechanic and you're running a garage, it's hard for you when your apprentice says, I don't know what's wrong with this transmission. It's really hard for you not to say, get out of the way. I'm going to go under the hood. I'm going to figure this out you know, at that point, you got to be like, actually try this,
1: or uh, just read the manual again. Mm, Really powerful. One of the points that you've hit home on as it relates to productivity and burnout is the topic of vision. Can you speak to just your thoughts on the value of vision, both for a a person being the individual, because you mentioned that Mm -hmm. that was part of your getting out of burnout, but then also the value of vision for a team?
0: Yeah, and I think that is a unique property of the CEO. I believe you can develop vision in community and it has to be owned by a community. But essentially, it's probably 80% CEO and 20% community. We went through that recently. We did a vision reboot in my company last year because my company really was a hobby 10 years ago that we just sort of became this thing. (laughs) <laughs> You've got kind of a really effective time. hobby on your
1: head. I mean, thank yeah. you. Yeah. It
0: was all <laughs> accidental. I mean, there's a lot of providence and a lot of grace and luck in it. So I'm very grateful. But it's yeah, it's become this massive hobby with seven full-time people now. So, you know, go figure that out. And millions of leaders. So it was just it was just sort of like my my pastime that kind of got out of control. But we weren't sure whether because I love business leaders. Are we business leaders or church leaders? And summer of 2022, I kind of came back and I thought, you know, I teach about vision, but my vision isn't very clear. And I told my team that and they said, yeah, we know. And so I said, let's develop a new vision together. And it's a good reminder because when I've done this in the past with the church or other things, the church is easier because like if you're really freewheeling the vision of a church, you have a problem. I think that was given to us. But with a company, it is what you want it to be. Like, That's the weird thing is like, what do you want this thing to be? It's like, I don't know. And so we were to help people thrive in life and leadership. And we wanted to bring the best of the business world to the church world, and the best of the church world to the business world. But I really said, it kind of feels like we're trying to be all things to all people. And I said to the team, Hey, let's go through and together we'll try to figure this out. And they said, well, you're the CEO. It's your company. That's your job. And you just report back to us. So I spent three months reading, listening to podcasts, praying, et cetera, et cetera. One of the best pieces of advice I got on vision and mission came from Rulof Bota. He's a Silicon Valley investment banker. And Tim Ferriss was interviewing him and he asked Rulof Bota, he said, hey, you've you know, obviously funded hundreds of companies. Can you tell or what are the criteria between the companies that make it like the founders who make it and the founders who don't? Because the vast majority of startups fail. And he said something that I'd never thought about before, but it's so good. He says, I look for the f- the founder problem fit. And he said, here's the reality. Anytime you start a company, there's lots of problems that come up. And he said, most people see the problems in the world or the problems in the company, they go, "Oh, that's really too bad." And then they say, "And what are we going to watch for Netflix tonight?" you know? And they move on. He said the successful founders, they find a problem and they obsess over it and they can't let it go. So you want to colonize Mars, or you want to revolutionize transportation, or you want to change how podcasts are done, or you want to make a much fairer system for artists and creatives, or whatever you want to do. They can't let it go. And so I started asking the question, what problem are we trying to solve as a company? When I asked that, my heart got more and more tuned into church leaders. And then one day it hit me like a ton of bricks that... What I really want to do is I want to help church leaders reverse the decline in the church. And when I started feeling that, it was emotional. And I started sharing it with friends. What do you think if our company exists to reverse the decline in the church? And the reaction was, ugh, are you kidding me? Do you know how big a problem that is? I'm like, exactly. You need a big problem. Like if I'm going to get fueled by this for the next 20 years, you need a huge problem to solve. We can't do it alone, but we can be part of the solution. And then okay well what can our company offer in that space? Well here's what we can do. We can help you identify and break your next growth barrier. That's what we do. That's what we, I can't do discipleship, that's somebody else. Give that to John Mark Comer. I don't do theological education. I now, I took one, but like I got a degree, but that's not my thing. But I can help you figure out what's your personal growth barrier, your organizational, your team barrier, your communication barrier. I'll give you all the soft skills they didn't teach you in seminary. I can do that. So we're here to reverse the decline in the church. And we're here to help you identify because a lot of people don't even know what growth barrier they're facing. It's like, well, I can help you with that and, and we'll help you break it. Great. Now we have our marching orders, but it came out of that problem founder fit. And then Arthur Brooks has a really interesting book called From Strength to Strength, where he says, and I think he's right, he says in the second stage of life, which he defines as past 40, so owns a lot of people, he says, you move from fluid intelligence to crystallized intelligence and, or it's maybe it's the other way around, I forget. Anyway, he says, you need a really interesting problem to solve. And interesting is a great word, because like, am I going to find this problem interesting in two years? Because 20% growth, are you going to find that interesting in three years? No, you're not. You don't care. But reversing the decline in the church, changing the way people interface with their computer, or um, making AI ethical, you'll probably be interested in that five years from now. And so I imagine myself on my front porch at 80. And maybe I don't have a podcast anymore. Maybe I don't have a company anymore. Maybe I don't get invited to speak anywhere anymore. That's fine. This is all going to go away one day, right? But I'm like, I could probably meet with the pastor down the road for lunch and try to help him reverse the decline in the church if he's interested in that. Or I could have a group of young leaders over to my house. We can hang out in the backyard and we can just check in and see how they're doing and what I can help them with. And I thought, yeah, that problem will probably keep me going for another couple of decades. <laughs> another way, you know, here's a, here's a fun thing. I got this from Seth Godin. I was talking to Seth around the time we were refiguring this, and uh, he was so helpful and so generous with his time. But he said something that was really fascinating. He took a question that we've all heard and made it the opposite. He said, what would you do if you knew you would fail? Because everyone says, what would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? He says, that's not a good question. He says, the better question is, what would you do if you knew you would fail? So here's the question. If you want to know your real passion is, would you do this if it wasn't going to work out? If you would go bankrupt and have to close a company. And when I applied that to reversing the decline in the church, I'm like, oh yeah, I'd, I'd go broke trying. I would do that. Uh, yeah, 100% I would do that. I would, if, if I spent 25 years on this and it failed, that was a good use of 25 years. Super clarifying
1: question. What would you do if you knew it would fail? Yeah, that's so powerful. I also love that example because reversing decline of the church, that that is simultaneously something that is huge, right? That's a big problem to aim your focus at. But also in the grand scheme of every problem that's available, it's pretty small, right? Like there were a lot of problems that you had to look at and say no to so that you could say yes to that. What, was it difficult for you to narrow in and become so wildly specific on one thing, Carrie? I do have a heart for
0: business leaders. So the secret is, in my last book, At Your Best, even though I'm a lawyer and a pastor, there are no Bible verses in At Your Best. The front cover has endorsements from Adam Grant and Seth Godin, and the back cover is Pat Lencioni. And that was very, very intentional. And it was placed in airports around the country, et cetera, et cetera, across the U.S., And I was hoping it would really take off with the business community. We hear from business leaders all the time. But you know who ended up buying that book? Church leaders. And you know the business leaders who bought that book? They tended to be elders at their church or heavily involved in their church or key donors at their church. And so I kind of didn't want to burn any bridges. And that was the hardest part of the discernment last year was saying, well, do I just close this off? And listen, I've read the stuff. I know niche, the, you know, they say the riches are in the niches. I don't think the riches are important. But, you know, that niche market is really what you want, that, that the more specific you get, the better it gets. But it's really tempting to say, no, we're trying to reach everybody. And I'm like, do I just say goodbye to business leaders? And in the end, we decided to drill down on church leaders. It's not a growing market, but it's underserviced. We think there's about thirty to 50,000 in the U.S. who are going to lead the way into the future. We want to serve them. And I talked to another, for well, Craig Rochelle. Craig and I were talking last fall when I was going through this. And we had a long conversation. And at the end, I said, I don't know, man, do I just like double down on church leaders? And he said to me something I'll carry to my grave. He said, Carrie, I don't think anyone's regretted spending their life on the church. I'm like, all right, man, thanks for wrecking me. That's great. But he's right, right? So we have, that was the hardest part. And we're not saying, hey, business leaders don't come. But we are saying you probably want to be here because you care about the local church and you care about your pastor and you care about the future of the church. And if you do, come join us on our mission. Mm.
1: What has the clarity of vision that you've now defined done for your team's morale done for conversations that you have done for strategic planning and things like that like what's the effect or impact been and is there anything that's specifically really interesting that was maybe unexpected that has occurred
0: it was very uniformly positive I thought we would lose some of the guests. So we mentioned Seth Godin. He and I were chatting a little bit about it and he gave me some free advice, which was amazing. And then I'm going to have him back on my podcast. He didn't say no. Now he's not a Christian. He's not a religious person, but he's like, I respect what you're doing, man. It's great. The thing that I thought would burn bridges has probably opened bridges. We, we kicked off this year with James Clear on the podcast. We've got some big guests lined up. I'm very excited for that. The other thing I did, we mentioned Brian Miles. I remember when Brian changed the name of his company, Brian and Shannon changed it from EA Help to Belay. And I was, you know, I've always been a partner and a friend of Brian, but he, like a partner as far as just my company and his, did some work together. But I remember he called me and he says, I got some big news. I want to share it with you. And he said, We're changing the name of the company. He said, We're just reaching out to all of our stakeholders and letting you know. And I thought that was so great. So I have about, 15, 20 clients who sponsor the podcast. And I set up calls with all of them to let them know about our change in direction. And this was right before we were renewing the 2023 sponsorship. So I thought, oh, watch half of them walk out the door, right? They actually got more excited and drilled down even deeper. So we're having a record year on that. And the audience growth doesn't really seem to be impacted so far. So I'm very excited for that, if anything. And then for our team, it's brought a lot of clarity. Mm. Because it was like, we knew it was mostly church leaders, but then it's like, well, what are we going to do for business leaders? And now we can just drill down and say, no, we're going to focus on church. And the business leaders who are here, they're going to be here because they care about their church. Mm. And if anyone else wants to listen in, come on over, join the party. (laughs) It's just, this is the conversation we're having.
1: We're not kicking you out. We're just saying this is what we're about. Yeah, Seth Godin just seems like he's got his fingerprints all over that because it's the difference between, you know, what he would say is a wandering generality and a meaningful specific. And I just think that's so powerful. If someone was in a position similar to what you were in where they say, "Okay, I'm playing the CEO role in this company right now and... Maybe our team is aware of it, but certainly I'm aware of it. We need a vision reboot, to use the language you used. What would be some of the actions that you would recommend they take to start moving forward towards rebooting, revitalizing, re-engaging with that topic of vision, Carrie?
0: So look at your gifting and look at your passion. Ask yourself when you're 80, when you're 70, when you're 50, like pick a decade. Looking back on your life, what will you wish you had done? You'll kind of know. The other thing I would say, when I was trying to figure out the business leader, church leader thing, I sat down one day with a sheet of paper, two columns, and I thought, okay, what do I have to say that is unique to business leaders? Because there's been a lot of faith-based leaders who have crossed into the business leadership sphere. John Acuff, uh, Donald Miller, John Maxwell, all those guys, right, have done that extremely well. And I thought, I can be like one of them. Then I wrote down unique things I have to say to business leaders. I had about eight things on a list. And then unique things I have to say to church leaders. I had about 182 before I stopped. And I'm like, oh, that's how God wired me up. That's where my heart goes. That's where my brain goes. And sometimes we can trick ourselves into thinking we deliver value in areas that we don't deliver value. I'll give you another good business example. So I live an hour north of Toronto. And just to the north of us is a little town of 30,000 people. That is a graveyard for good restaurants. We've lived here for over 25 years. Just if you're going to open a good restaurant, it's going to be dead in minutes. And as a result, we didn't go out for dinner a whole lot. And then two years ago, three years ago, these people who are now friends, I didn't know them at the time, opened a restaurant called The Common Stove. And we had heard about it from friends and I I was kind of cynical and done with restaurants. And they said, no, you really gotta go, you gotta try it. So right before the pandemic hit, we went to this place and it was sensational. It wasn't cheap, but it was so good. It It was the best fine dining North of Toronto and can easily compete in the theater district in Toronto or New York or LA. It was fantastic. I'm like, wow. And I got to know these owners. They become good friends. And I'm like, what even gave you the spa to do this? Like, this is is where restaurants go to die. Because everybody just serves very average food in Aurelia. And they said, we live here. And one of the owners, his wife is a doctor. And then his partner, he and his wife moved up a few months earlier. And they said, we thought that there were people like you who lived here. And they had given up on dining in Aurelia. And if they wanted a nice night out, they would go to Toronto and get a hotel overnight and then come back the next day. And we thought if we built it here, they would come. They're packed out. And if they had shown me their business plan, I would have said, oh, Aurelia really can't support this. And I would have been wrong. And what they did was they niched down. They found a niche and they nailed it.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's really inspiring and also really practically helpful. Um, I know we're getting close to time, so I want to make sure I ask the productivity question. Oh, yeah, and you had the one question you never asked anyone. Yeah. Which one was that? Uh, well, this is the one that I've been trying to figure figure out. So, like, you look at the life of Jesus. He's someone that was clearly had, had a vision that he knew what was going to happen. It wasn't even like he was guessing whether or not it was going to happen. He knew what was going to happen. And he also had, had a very compelling mission, right? The guy obviously had a motive that was really pure and really good and, and perfect is what I believe, right? And, and so, but in the context of the vision and the mission, we also see someone that was wildly like distractible and interruptible. Like it's wild how it's like he oftentimes in going places, like things Constantly took him off course, and he was maybe or hypothetically or theoretically deviated. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about because so much of business and leadership literature today teaches like, you got to happen to your schedule, don't let your schedule happen to you. You've got to have your plan for the day, and you adhere to that plan. You do not respond to other people's emergencies. And then seemingly, it looks like we look at the life of Jesus and we're like, He did not follow that playbook. Like he was constantly taken off course, right? By other things happening, people needing to be healed, people asking for help. How do you reconcile those two? Or what are your thoughts there in terms of what can be learned, Carrie? I have thought about
0: this a lot. So I'm very thankful for your question. So let's look at it in the context of 33 years. Most historians, first of all, whether you believe Jesus is God or not, there's almost no serious historian who doubts that there was a man named Jesus who disrupted the world in the first century, whatever you think he was. But, and most would say he lived about 33, 34 years. So that's Jesus, okay? What did he do for the first 30 years? No public ministry. What we know is that he started at age 30. He was crucified around age 33. So everything you just described happened in a three-year window. So what he did was he did a 10 to 1 preparation ratio. So he prepared for 10 hours for every hour he executed. And we do the opposite in our culture. We prepare for an hour and then deliver for 10. So it's 10 to 1, 10 years for every year. That's insane. The hour is wrong. It's 10 years for every year he prepared. And we know that because when he was 12, the gospels say that, He already knew more about the scriptures than the Pharisees and the rabbis. He was studying them. He was sitting around learning from them, but also teaching them. It's like, all right. So at 12, he already knew a lot. And then he had almost two more decades before he launched. So he had all of this preparation, all of this reserve before he even started. Secondly, and this is a fun little Bible study if you really want to do it. Look at the number of times, Jesus. what you said was absolutely right. He was available. He's going from Jericho to Galilee, and he gets interrupted, and he heals these people, and he stops, and this woman touches him. and Yeah, that's all true. But look at the number of times where Jesus disappears. His disciples couldn't find him. There are times where there were so many people coming to be healed, and he goes, all right, let's call it a day. We're going off. He would just stop. And then His disciples would be like, where did he go now? Oh, he's back on the mountain praying again. All right, we'll go find him. Oh, he's off on a boat. He had this amazing, because I've studied this, and I don't have math ratios, but he had this amazing tension between when he was doing his ministry in public and his private retreats. So we already start with a 30-year head start of preparation where there was no public ministry. And even in John 2, he's sort of like, mom, settle down. Okay. Water into wine. Like my time hasn't really come. Come on, mom, leave me alone. I'm just at a wedding. And Mark, he's constantly like, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. And he's always disappearing. So I think what happened was we kind of knew, Jesus knew I got to really prepare for this. And there are limits to what I can accomplish. Not not because he's not God, of course, that, that probably is heresy the way I said it, but like Hey, if I don't get away and pray, it's not going to go well tomorrow. And he would take his disciples away and then he would teach them privately because he kind of knew, guys, in 3 years this is riding on you and you're not doing particularly well. Most of you have a C+, plus, some of you have a D- minus, and one of you has an F. And soon you're going to be the church. So I got to I got to build into you. But the amount of time that Jesus disappears that nobody can find him where he's off praying or he's asleep Is incredible and what that tells me is it was a three-year really he accomplished more in three years than anyone else accomplished in a thousand years like but it was there were still limits within it so what do I need to learn even Jesus took naps even Jesus got away to pray even Jesus said enough. Like the number of times you see the crowds coming and he's like, all right, time out. We're done for the day. Did that mean everybody was healed? No, it meant he was finished. Because he was working on something more than, oh, you'll be able to use that hand again. He was working on, we're going to invite all of humanity into eternity and fix this problem that separated people from God. God. You're not going to worry about your hand after that is taken care of. So I'm going to go now and I'm going to make sure we're in a position. And when you look at the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, there's a real debate going on. Jesus is like, I don't know whether I can do this. I don't know whether I have the strength. Father, if you can let this pass, I will let this, like, I'll take it. But it, not my will, but your will. And they went to the cross and perfectly obeyed. And God raised him from the dead. But there was a lot in that. And Jesus practiced what we would call self-care in the midst of it all. Hmm. And that gave him the ability, because he was so prepared, to be like, and what do you want? And what do you want? And what do you want? But then there are other parts where it's like tired as he was from the journey. John chapter 4, I think. You know? He was fully human and fully God. That's the mystery.
1: Yeah, and the yeah. mystery is the right word. And, and just thinking about how it's like, man, he didn't he didn't go off for silence and solitude once everyone was healed. He established boundaries, even though there were probably still people that needed to be healed.
0: Well, and that's where the, hey, just because it's someone else's emergency doesn't mean it's your emergency. I talked to so many burned out pastors. I talked to so many burned out business leaders. And here's the challenge is, right now, Alex, somebody's having an emergency. Someone I know is having an emergency. And if I was supposed to respond, I have a friend of mine who says, the problem with needs-based ministry is there's no end to human need. And he's right. You fight one fire, there's another fire. That's why there's not one fire department for a big city. It's like sometimes they're all out. It's a five-alarm fire. It's like we need five stations to solve this problem. And for a lot of us, particularly pastors, they think I'm here to fight all the fires mm. and that doesn't scale and you need limits and you can only give what you've got. You can only, you know, if you're depleted and you're exhausted and you're burned out and you're tired, what have you got less, left to give? Nothing, nothing. But now by living in a way today that will help me thrive tomorrow, I most days have a shot at giving you something.
1: And and it's like, God is always going to be a part of that, right? We're, we're spending a lot of time Mm -hmm. in the path for growth community right now, looking at John 15 and just the idea of I am the vine, you are the branches. And he literally says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's like, if you spend time with that verse, it's, you realize, oh, that's actually real. Like (laughs) that's not like Mm -hmm. a, a metaphorical exaggeration. It's like, apart from me, you're, you're as good as dead, essentially. Like even what you do do will not, produce fruit. And and so, and so I feel like that's what your answer is saying. Right. And to look back
0: and go, oh, that was nothing. Maybe, maybe some of the stuff I've done to now is nothing because it wasn't done in Christ. I mean, at one level, right, I'm not breathing, talking alive without God. That's true. But maybe some of the stuff I did was nothing. I thought it was something, but maybe it was nothing. What, what if I fully yielded to him? Those are great questions to ask.
1: Mm. Well, that feels like a, a good place to let people chew on what if what I did was nothing, but then out of that, uh, give people be encouraged, everyone be encouraged. Everyone. Yeah, that's <laughs> so right. That's messy, right. Isn't it? Uh, Carrie, I, I just so appreciate you taking the time for this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, to everyone that's listening, the, the latest book is at your best and it hits on many of the topics that we talked on in this conversation. And then Carrie's podcast also is just brilliant. Some of the guests that y'all have and the work that y'all's team does to structure really intentional conversations is just, I mean, it's an inspiration for our team for sure. So we'll link that in the show notes of this episode. Carrie, thanks for your time today. But more than that, thanks for being an example of someone that lives what they talk about, because it's something that we all get to learn from and benefit from. So thank you. Attempting to.
0: Alex, thank you so much. Thank you for what you do. And it's been a delight to spend some time with you.
1: Well, I'm grateful to Kerry for his example, for his thoughtfulness, and for him taking the time to invest in me and in our audience in this way. I hope that you found that conversation valuable. And hey, if you do find the content on this podcast valuable, we send out written content every single Wednesday in an email we call Worth It Wednesday. I think most email isn't worth it. So every single week, we try to send out just one that is. We send a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking If you want to get on that email list, you can sign up at pathforgrowth.com or by clicking the link that's in the show notes. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We're praying for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.